Hi, welcome to Closed. Uh, we're talking all things real estate in New York City. Today, we're super excited to have Jonathan Miller. Jonathan is the CEO of Miller Samuel Incorporated. He's an associate professor teaching market analysis at Columbia. Miller Samuel is a market-leading real estate analyst. Uh, they've been preparing Douglas Elliman market reports for 28 years. We'll probably talk about one of those reports in a little bit. And we're looking forward to hearing Jonathan's perspective on the state of the real estate market, particularly in New York City, because that's all we care about. We're egocentric New York City real estate guys. Um, here with my partner, Cooper. Hey, Jonathan, what's going on? Uh, good. It's good to be here. I appreciate the invite. Any excuse I have to talk about the housing market, that because uh, I'm banned from doing that at home with my kids, uh, I'm very appreciative. So uh, I think this will be fun. We're happy to give you the forum. Um, and we, we won't send it to your family. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so why don't we start by you telling a little, a little bit about yourself and, uh, and your company, what Miller Samuel does, what you're doing at Columbia. Sure. So uh, Miller Samuel, I co-founded back in 1986. Uh, we are a, a real estate appraisal firm that covers the New York City metro area. Um, our our clients, about a third of our business are banks, uh, you know, mortgage rate related, refi and purchase, et cetera. And two thirds of our work is essentially litigation support, uh, anything to do with uh, basically anything that doesn't have to do with a bank. Um, we do lots of court testimony, uh, state tax, gift tax, um, people just suing each other. And we they, basically we need a, you know, they need uh, a moment a value as of a moment in time. And that's really what Miller Samuel is starting. And we've been around since 1986, but uh, starting around 1994, I started authoring a series of market studies that were used for, or to cover the housing market for Douglas Salomon, what their footprint was which is initially New York City. And um, and after sort of being self-taught, um, I started noticing that government agencies like the Fed were reading my work um, because my whole focus, my whole our whole brand as a company is being neutral. Um, we just want to provide a neutral benchmark for the parties to make informed decisions. And that's really all we care about. Uh, so the market studies uh, were able, you know, essentially um, I followed Elements footprint and now I cover about 40 different housing markets across the U.S. Um, from Southern California to Colorado to Florida to Boston to New York Metro and, and more to come. Uh, and it's been fascinating because now we're in this really interesting, I'm sure we'll talk about it, we're in this really interesting time about the market changing, pivoting, and um, in some ways, nationally, I can speak to nationally because of this footprint, but also uh, locally because the, you know not every market is performing exactly the same, but for the most part, it's pretty similar. Um, and then for my uh, NYU or NYU Columbia teaching gig. Um, I, I'm an adjunct, uh, I've been doing it. This is, I think my fifth year 
and I teach market analysis to grad students and I get to say, tell the same dad jokes every year and they don't know, they're not the wiser. And uh, it's been super fun. The only drawback has been the last two years I've been doing it by Zoom. My class size is about a hundred and more than 190 students. Um, and there's just nothing better than being up front and getting questions by really smart people. So I'd help it. I think it helps me stay on my game as well. And there's nothing better than uh, 190 students laughing from a good dad joke. So that must be rewarding as well. It's, it's the re it's as important as life itself. As far as I'm concerned, you could just mute everybody and pretend they're laughing. That's the best part of zoom. Absolutely. I'm (laughs) with you. So Jonathan, maybe, maybe we can start as Lee mentioned at the top of the, of the podcast where we're in New York city uh, real estate firm. And, and that's kind of our, our focus. So maybe we could start off by just talking about kind of big picture things that you're seeing um, related to the New York market trends, um, sure. specific issues, and, and maybe at the same time, how that does. I don't think we want to get too much into the into the national forecast, but um, maybe if there are some some ways that it kind of uh, some interesting ways it diverges or correlates with with what you're seeing sure. across the country. Sure, I, I'd be happy to. I, I, when you look at New York, uh, so if you if you think about what's happening now in the city versus the suburbs in New York Metro, uh, the city itself is somewhat of a national outlier, um, just as it was in the early days of the pandemic. So in the early days of the pandemic, we were the global hotspot, Manhattan. That's where my offices are based. I remember getting a call from, I, I, I was president of an appraisal organization. I have, so I have like contacts all over the country of my peers and I get emails, you know, when, when all the, the COVID talk was really, um, you know, the lockdown, uh, in the spring of 2020. And I remember a friend of mine who's an appraiser in West Texas, which is really the middle of nowhere where he is. And he said, boy, you know, I really feel sorry for you. That must be tough. But we're in the middle of nowhere. Nothing will happen here. We won't have any any problems. And then, of course, three weeks later, the next hotspot was West Texas after <laughs> after New York City. Um, and and the other thing that I learned, and again, this this kind of goes will feed into what's happening now, is that when you think about um, during the the lockdown, the um, uh, the highest infection rates for COVID were were not in Manhattan, which has the highest density. But I think the world sort of thought high density equals more risk. I'm not saying density wasn't a factor, but it's not the reason. And and so, for example, Manhattan had the lowest infection rates, but the highest density. But mark areas like the outer reaches of Brooklyn and Queens. And Staten Island had the had the lowest density, but the highest infection rate. Hmm. Um, and they're very suburban-like. So initially, there was this weird urban to suburban. Everybody's fleeing the cities nationwide, and I and it wasn't unique to New York. It was sort of nationwide where we saw outbound migration and no inbound migration for a while. Um, and so that sort of shaped where we are today, because. The, um, you know, this sort of city to suburban narrative, uh, fueled incredible demand to the suburbs that ring New York City. Uh, just unbelievable 
an unbelievable frenzy to the point where it obliterated supply. Uh, and yet Manhattan didn't really join the party in terms of an active market, even though rates were falling pretty sharply. Uh, they had already been sh- falling since, well, they've been falling for 35 years, but really accelerated beginning in 2018 and then accelerated uh, after the lockdown began. Um, and you had supply obliterated. And you also have credit conditions that aren't that loose. Uh, they're t- they're If you sort of go back the three or four decades prior to the financial crisis um, and just skip over that where, you know, you had to have a pulse or fog or mirror to get a mortgage um, prior to that for 30 years, lending standards were about during all during this lockdown and sort of pandemic era were about 20 percent tighter than normal. Now they're less than that. They're more like five to 10 percent tighter than normal and normal being the 30 years prior to the financial crisis. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is all about supply that supply is why prices nationally are up 20%. Um, you know, that's, that's last year, uh, you know, uh, that's not sustainable, um, because now we have this jump in rates. But anyway, the, the point is that we, th- that the city went from the, the national outlier of very little activity after the lockdowns ended um, and now it's an outlier. It was an outlier again before this last rate jump, which I'll talk about, but um, where uh, inventory is not low in the city, um, but it's still virtually non-existent. And I'm being, I'm exaggerating, but it's, it's unusually low, even though we're seeing inventory come on now, suburban inventory, like my hometown in Connecticut, it normally has 200 listings. Uh, after COVID, it had 50. And then last year, it had 12. Hmm. Now it's like 45. So it's way up from last year, but it's way down from normal. And um, and that's sort of the, the sort of the moment we find ourselves in. I think that's a good segue because I was, I was reading um, in your blog, in addition to your day job and your night job. You also have a blog. Um, and uh, this is from back in April. You wrote that, that bidding wars were proliferating um, and that 2X or 3X of the current inventory, and that's back in April, wouldn't be enough to kind of quell the, the, the bidding wars that were Correct. taking place. So we're, we're two months past that now. The market seems like it's changing. We're shifting a little bit. Has that come to pass or... Um, uh, or are you starting to see the the bidding wars slow down a little bit? We are seeing the bidding wars slow down a bit. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting is for the last two or three, probably year and a half, I've been saying that interest rates are way too low in the context of the housing market. Uh, and they had created this frenzy. And if you can think of inventory as a living, breathing organism that uh, basically is the total of the sort of life cycles of the residents. So someone's, you know, like my wife and I, you know, are, I have four boys. They've graduated, last one graduated college in 2020. They're all gainfully employed. They're not living at home. We're empty nesters. 
So we're looking to downsize. You have people that are trading up. All that takes time to percolate. And rates have been so low for so long that they've been burning, essentially burning off supply faster than it can be created. So what you have is a situation like Long Island, uh, Westchester, Fairfield, those three regions are outside of New York City um, and New Jersey as well, um, where bidding wars, meaning and our proxy for bidding wars is a, um, a sale that closes at a price that is higher than the seller's last asking price. So we're assuming this, the buyer didn't just volunteer to pay 10% more you know, that, that there was some sort of bidding war. That's the proxy. And we're looking at 45 to 55% of all the closings in the first quarter of this year sold above asking price. Now, I cover three counties in Southern California, LA, Orange, and San Diego. And it's out there, it's more like 65 or two thirds of all the transactions. So that is not a sustainable condition. And the the sort of in order to keep the market moving forward in a sustainable way, rates need to be higher relative to the sort of strength of the economy. And we have 3.6% unemployment. There's no way we should be having mortgage rates in the threes. Um, they should be in the fives or sixes uh, just to, to create a little bit more stability. And, and it's not about building new property because New construction is 10, 15% of total inventory in any, in any market, typically in the U.S. Uh, even if you remove that, it's the resale activity that really is providing the supply that's needed. And otherwise, we just have prices going through the roof up 20%, not sustainable. And we have a lending environment that is not flexible, you know, like it was during the bubble while, where there was no underwriting. Um, and that's why we're having record rents across the country because people that are on the margin about, you know, sort of being, you know, aren't qualified or right on the margin, uh, are going to be pushed into the rental market. Uh, and, and it's making a tight situation even tighter. So you, you, you mentioned sort of the New York and, and surrounding suburbs, uh, sales forecast, but, and, but then you just sort of alluded to the, the rental market. Um, is our, I mean, I know anecdotally that, that the rental market is, is very tight, but are you seeing kind of the same type of trends in the rental market as in the, in the sales market throughout the, the five boroughs or, or not maybe? yet, not yet. Uh, we are still seeing prices at record highs. Uh, we're still seeing, uh, relatively low inventory and vacancy is remaining under 2%. It's been that way for a while. Not that that's unusual, but during the pandemic or the uh, during the lockdown and just after lockdown, it was 11%. Uh, and so vacancy has really come down to, um, you know, and it, uh, I want to say unusually low. It's not unusual, but it's it's at the lower end of where it typically has been over time. And that reflects, uh, you know, how difficult it is. And, and the thing that I think it, uh, difficult it is in terms of finding affordable housing. But I think what it what's really fascinating, um, uh, maybe not for a buyer or, or a tenant, but the idea that 
you know, office towers right now are two thirds empty, two thirds empty. And you have a lot of vacant retail space, yet you have record rental prices. You have the last three quarters, uh, the third quarter of last year, fourth quarter of last year, uh, and first quarter of this year, all were all-time sales records of some shape or form. Like, for example, the first quarter was the most sales ever recorded in my 33 years of tracking the market. Um, you know, fourth quarter was the highest fourth quarter. So here we have records of, in terms of transactions, rental, sale, and yet office towers are two thirds empty. How is that possible? Well, a lot of it is, you know, household formation has been sort of on the back burner during the lockdown. And all of a sudden people got out of their parents' place if they're a millennial or, uh, you know, we have people like sort of moving out and, and, and all that. But part of it is because I think we overweighted um, the value of the connect, the proximity to work. In other words, um, there's, and this is anecdotal, but lots of cases I'm reading about and getting feedback from the brokerage community. You have people in Chicago living, moving to Manhattan because they can't. Uh, you have people moving from Manhattan or to, from Boston to Florida because they can. Um, and so the next three, four, five years, um, because of remote, um, you know, sort of there's going to be a lot of churn. There was just a white paper that came out in April. I saw it on NBER. It's sort of a collection of white papers that comes out. I'm not an economist. I, I, my social media profile says I'm a non-economist, um, because I know just enough to be dangerous, but um, but it was fascinating. This white paper came out and I blogged about it in my housing notes last week um, that more than 50% of the price growth that we saw over this pandemic era has is more than half is attributable to remote work and the impact on housing that it's had. That's interesting. I so, see it as a churn of some sort. So, so the transaction volume is due to people now having the flexibility to go where they really want to go. So, you know, I wanted to work in West Texas my entire life, but I'm from New York my and my job's in New York. Now I can go to West Texas and work from West Texas because that's acceptable. Uh, and that's, yes. that's driving the transaction volume where, where people don't feel kind of locked in one place anymore. That's, that's correct. Uh, in many ways, you know, we've been going through decades of reducing mobility where people were unable to move because one market had such a high housing cost compared to another and the companies couldn't necessarily afford to give them a pay raise commensurate with the, you know, it created like lack of mobility with remote mobility has mushroomed. Um, however, the caveat I would say with that is, um, and this is more just my own observation is that mobility generally increases with, with income or wealth. And so, um, one of the things that has been quite apparent after the, um, after the lockdown began and the months afterwards is that housing demand largely inverted. In other words, for the last four or five years prior to the pandemic, um, the softer the market, so the high end of the market was soft 
and it was because of oversupply and uh, and it was tighter as you move lower in price after the lockdown hit um the you know the lower wage earners were pummeled much more severely by the lockdown than mid and upper tier salary types and as a result um you had this all of a sudden the high end was where the boom was occurring because of i largely i believe because of greater mobility yeah no, it's so interesting. It's like, it, like kind of you alluded to. It's it flies in the face of of like standard economic thinking that if you know the idea that New York people would want to live in New York despite the fact that it's the most expensive place to live, but work elsewhere. It's just like it, you know, ever we've we've always sort of operated under the assumption that it would be the opposite, right? That people would want right. to go to the the you know live in cheaper locations because they have more space and. Um, right, right, and 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 yeah, because now you have the option if you're if you can afford it, and you've always wanted to live in New York, and it doesn't matter for in yeah. the context of your job, you could live any, you could live in Greece, like you live wherever you want. Um, but that's not everybody. But there was just a number that came out. I saw it. I think in Cranes by uh, the thing. I'm trying to remember the name of the think tank, but it said eight percent of office workers, only eight percent right now. In the U.S., eight percent are actually working five days a week in the office, and I'm not saying that number won't increase. But the idea that it's going to be eighty or ninety percent seems kind of ridiculous at this point, especially because I think there's been a test case that is, you know, we've seen in practice that it kind of works. You know, you have issues with mentoring and training new people, so that's the that's the shortfall. I'm, I'm, you know, we've hired a bunch of people during the, um, after, after the lockdown and, you know, it's, it's much more difficult to bring in new people. Um, so that's something, a workaround, but the rest for the experienced, you know, it's sort of, it's become a quality of life thing, um, for employees. And, you know, the, as long as they're getting their work done, I think social mores have really changed pretty quickly. There were attempts by like Wall Street. Uh, firms like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and um, J.P. Morgan, I believe, that, you know, the summer of 21, they were saying, you know, everybody's coming back. You know, if you don't come back, you're in the wrong industry, you know, full time. And they've backpedaled on that because people just quit. They went somewhere else, right? I mean, that you don't, uh, all of a sudden, there's been enough time to sort of stew over this change that that's going to impact housing patterns. And that's what we're going to sort of, you know, watch and see over the next three to five years. I think we have a ways to go. Yeah. Um, you mentioned kind of this, this trend of mobility kind of driving a lot of these factors. Are there other factors? I, you know, I know that a couple of years ago before pre-pandemic, there was a lot of talk of real estate becoming unaffordable in New York because it was becoming a, you know, people from around the world, billionaires from around the world were buying up real estate. And, and do you see, do you still see the same kind of international money coming into the, into the real estate market in New York, or has that been affected or changed at all by the pandemic? And the other, the other one that I wanted to mention is we've been hearing a lot, and this is more maybe on the residential side, but about Airbnb being a real driver of affecting, affecting supply, but maybe people are buying up investment properties and Airbnb them. So that might affect kind of the, the, the sales market as well. Yeah. Uh, so uh, first on the foreign buyer idea, um, 
uh, it seems like every decade we have this imbalance where the dollar gets really weak and coming here, there's a massive discount. And so you have investors. So in 06, 07, I called it the Irish carpenter syndrome because uh, lots of Euro countries, the dollar was so weak that you had like a building in Midtown um, that looks directly at the uh, the Rockefeller Christmas tree when it's up. Uh, the Centria, I think, or the Centra, uh, 100% of the buyers from the sponsor originally were from Ireland. And, um, and, and you had different buildings where, you know, German, you had this sort of, because the imbalance made the euro, it was a 50% discount. Um, now the euro and the dollar are almost the same. Um, so there's not the currency play. And, uh, and we actually, uh, you know, uh, in this 2013, 14 was the last time we had a really big imbalance. And we had a lot of South American, a lot of Brazilian, the Brazilian economy was booming, unlike now. Um, and China and, um, and Europeans were very active in the international, um, you know, the international demand that is was very strong because you had this, um, this currency play that could be done. That wasn't the only reason. Part of it was geopolitical where people were investing, um, to preserve their investment, hold on to it, um, and re- reduce some of the risk and sort of, um, you know, spread their wealth around the world. Australia, you know, is basically bought up by Chinese investors uh, in a spectacular fashion. 2014, I had like, I don't know, three or four developers from Australia stop in my office and say, well, there's nothing left to build. <laughs> What's the opportunity in New York? And um, and And so I don't think we're going to see like that's sort of a random that's tied to sort of, you know, uh, uh, the, the strength of the dollar, which continues to be strong. Um, so I don't see that as a potential upside um, in the near future, but you never know. But it's always something that'll be there. Um, I, um, in my relationship with Douglas Solomon, I remember in 2011 on their 100th anniversary, I wrote a magazine article for them. And actually, it's a page on my blog that uh, every week gets like a thousand visitors just to that one page. And it's it's like a hundred years of Manhattan real estate. And what I did is I went through the New York Times archives uh, going back to the 100 years or to 1911. And I did it by decade and I looked at ads and and, you know, the information that was out there. And it arguably wasn't a very scientific look, but some of the quotes that I found were, you know, the quote in like, these were taken in the early 1920s. One was wall street will continue to be an important driver of Manhattan real estate. Now that quote could be now uh, or any decade. Um, And the other quote was uh, international demand is making Manhattan less affordable. Something needs to be done. This was like in the early twenties. And there are, you know, lots of, so I'm not saying that, you know, affordability hasn't been growing worse, but what I'm saying is it's not a new problem. It's been around 
for a hundred years or more. Um, which Cooper, is, does, Cooper does the bulk of his research from the 1920s New York Times. That's why I asked the question. Yes. So he was a little confused, <laughs> which is why the question got right. asked. Right. Understood. Understood. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm kind of curious. You've talked to kind of danced around the edges talking about COVID. Um, I guess uh, I'm curious how your approach to understanding the short and medium term market evolution was impacted by COVID? How did, how did that kind of factor into the work you were doing in 2020, 2021, and still doing today? And, and how do you kind of see some of the issues that COVID brought up or, or the, the paradigm shift, you know, people working from home? How is that going to play into your analysis moving forward? Sure. So I think the expectation in the beginning of the lockdown was, housing prices in New York are going to collapse. There's no market. It's over. And uh, in fact, I was highly critical of uh, the Real Estate Board of New York and and uh, Street Easy because they turned off the days on market calculation for a while on the listings because nothing was selling. And And I'm like, you can't do that. Like, everybody knows we're in a global pandemic. And and okay, so if the marketing time instead of being 30 days is 180 days, but all the listings are 180 days, all you're doing is damaging the credibility of this resource and the industry. I was very outspoken about that because you can't cherry pick. Hey, when times are good, you count it. Times are bad, you don't count it. Um, but, but what was fascinating is that there wasn't a sell-off that, um, you know, when you think about the boom in the suburbs that we saw, um, a lot of that demand came from the rental market. And the rental market is where prices really fell 20 to 30 percent. The purchase market, five to 10 percent, maybe a little over 10 in some cases, some not at all, uh, because there wasn't people weren't selling it, selling off inventory initially mushroomed because there was activity fell by more than half and then it it just dissipated over time sellers you know think about a buyer uh saved up for down payment they're ready to go it's spring of 20 and everything turns off right and the the seller is ready to sell everything and it turns off so what happens right it's just like this waiting game until the coast is clear Everybody feels comfortable. And that really, you know, the, the pause the market for, you know, at least well into the um, the fall of 2020. It was like six months of kind of looking over your shoulder, what's going on. Meanwhile, the rental market, um, you know, rents were way down and plummeted all the way to the fall. Um, and then all of a sudden we started to see a rebound. In fact, when we think of the purchase market, I think one of the biggest takeaways has been something, a word that, you know, I'm always trying to get into the urban dictionary uh, for real estate, if there is one. And one of them is... Um, this is, let, just be careful. We got, we got a lot of kids listening to this at home. Okay, so. fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. yeah, well, our, our audience okay. is mostly children for some reason, despite the topics. <laughs> Go crazy. Very very crazy. <laughs> we have a very sophisticated young audience. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, was the term co-primary. And so, you know, 
if you look at the Hamptons, Hamptons is a luxury second home market, vacation home market, second home market, luxury. Uh, I contended it pivoted to become a co-primary market, which meant that you you had out a place in New York and you went out to the Hamptons. Again, this skews affluent because affluent is more mobile. Go out to the Hamptons and buy not a place for the summer or rent for a place for the summer, buy a place that you could see living there periodically, uh, uh, you know, whenever you wanted. And, you know, as people and businesses started to figure out remote and how many days a week you had to come in and that sort of thing. Um, And as a result, uh, rental inventory was obliterated, would-be renters became buyers, mortgage rates plummeted. Um, you know, it was like this perfect storm. And um, and and all of a sudden you have second homes, again, because of remote, all of a sudden become just another primary residence. Um, and then for people that can only afford one place, uh, you know, they weren't as anchored to... I, what I started saying right after the lockdown was the tether between work and home just got infinitely long. Uh, and I think that still is the case today. And by the way, uh, this is happening across the U.S. This is not unique to New York at all, that every housing market that I cover um, is seeing very similar patterns where um, greater proximity uh, or, or further proximity uh, is tolerable. I'm I'm a perfect example. I just moved. I'm about an. I live in Connecticut. I'm a half an hour away. I'm in an hour away by train. Um, since the pandemic, I go into the city instead of five days a week, or four to five days a week. I go in two days a week, one to two days a week. And as a result, I just moved. I, I'm buying a house. Um, in the process of buying a house, I'm another half an hour away, but I don't care. Because I'm going to be on Metro North. Train's only six minutes. It's like it is now from where I live. And I just I have a laptop. Whether I'm on my laptop on the train or on the couch in my living room or at my desk, I can still get a lot done. Like it's not a it's not like I'm driving another half an hour to work. It's you know, what's the the great thing about the New York Metro area is we have a you know public transportation that is unlike anywhere else for and some reason for, for some reason when i have my laptop on my couch i'm i'm not productive i'm <laughs> I, it's just nap time at that point right right well i listen i i can't say that i haven't uh upped my nap game uh while working at home but i'm still just as if not more efficient uh, personally. And, but that's not for everybody. Some people want to be in the office because, you know, they've got a bunch of kids at home. There's all kinds of distractions and noise. And during the pandemic or lockdown was zoom school. And it was like a gift to get out and go to the office. But as that sort of stabilizes, um, you know, I think we're going to end we're and you can see on Metro North and other railroads, you're going to see, you're seeing, you know, much lower, um, volume of passengers, um, but it's because they're working at home a larger number of days, which is going to pose all kinds of challenges to the region. 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, just to kind of follow up on the, on the last question a little bit, um, you know, we talked about kind of uh, the churn with respect to people moving. We talked about there being less of a, a less connective tissue between someone's job and where they live. Um, mobility being anchored to whether or not you can afford to be mobile. I'm guessing that as you're preparing your, your market analyses, as you're teaching your class, you're talking about these things. Is this something that you anticipate still being uh, dominant five years from now? Is the answer, I'm not sure, we, we don't really know? Or when you're kind of trying to forecast, are you factoring in um, – these factors is kind of long-term here to stay factors. So that's a really good point. Um, so I think the answer is, cause I'm still processing. The answer is I would be shocked if remote evaporated as a significant force in housing and how people view housing and the relationship with work. I, it would, it would have to be something, another major change in society that we can't figure. I think it's here to stay. Um, maybe not as extreme as it is now, um, but not that much different. You know, I, I used to say, the way I used to describe it is, you know, the pendulum, and I hate pendulum analogies because people say, you know, it's a buyer's market or the seller's market, you know, pendulum swinging as if every home is the exact same market segment. Um, you know, a studio walk up on the sixth floor is the same as a, you know, as a 15 room Park Avenue. It's the same market. It's not. Um, but I think the reality is that, um, uh, that remote is here to stay forever, at least for our lifetimes, and that it's going to be a factor. It's going to calculate into the way we look at housing, especially outer reaches that, you know, from business districts or locations um, as being more viable. Um, and then the other sort of confusing part of it is that people are, I think we're going to see more people coming to cities because they want to experience the city and what it has to offer and not just New York. Um, and uh, because they're remote, they can work anywhere. And I don't think that's going away. I would be surprised if it is, especially think of, Think of, you know, companies that, you know, you know, spend millions on leasing and then they go from five to three days a week and they downsize their space by 40%. That's a, that's a physical savings if they can, if they're comfortable with, you know, there's no productivity loss. Um, and it's going to vary by, by industry. You know, some industries are much more collaborative. Obviously, retail is much more, you know, face to face. So it's it's not universal across the board. It's it's going to be different, but it's going to be and it's going to take different shapes. But it's there, and it it already should be part of the calculus of thinking about the uh, future of a housing market and and development. To to kind of piggyback on that point, are there any other trends um, that you sort of are are thinking about that that maybe are just kind of bubbling in the background that you could see having significant impacts on the market two, five, ten years from now, specifically the New York market, just things that are things that are out there that might might pop up and might really drive drive some, you know, changes yeah. in the market. Um so I think the answer is I have no idea. 
that would be probably, I mean, usually like, um, I didn't foresee a global pandemic, right. you know, I, 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 you know, I just, I didn't read that much about, you know, in college, I've, I've focused on other, other topics. I mean, like, the, the great financial crisis, I actually kind of saw that. I called that in 07 and um, in New York. And and then I called, um, I've called a couple of like mini moments. Um, um, but I don't think, I think this would have to be a sea change mm-hmm. uh, to sort of overturn what's happening. The biggest concerns are short term, whether or not we go into a recession, how rates, you know, rates going to go up as much as the Fed wants them to, I don't think so. Um, uh, but um, you know, I I think we're sort of as much as we're moving into a higher inflation interest rate world. I I'm just not sold that it's long term and permanent, um, but it's certainly happening. Well, the Fed reads you, so just tell them to keep interest rates relatively Absolutely. low, and they'll right, follow right. along. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I'm pretty sure they don't really listen to me, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean it's a it's one of those things like, you know, so what makes a housing market jittery is uncertainty, and when you have the Fed doing a 50 basis point increase after a 25 basis point increase, I think it actually impacted the market more than they realize or the economy more than they realize. Um, and so I, but who knows, you know, I, I, you know, what are they going to do? I don't know. No one, no one really knows. Um, there's lots of ways to track it and guess and all that stuff. But I, I feel like that's almost a waste of time. You got to use what is given to you. And right now the tendency is to shift to a little bit higher rate environment and, and, cut down the sort of intensity of the housing boom that we've just gone through by the way without fast and loose credit it's been it's been a function of lack of supply it's uh just sort of as we were talking it occurred to me i think it, it's going to be interesting to to think about how you know the the covid rebound was largely pretty quick right and and kind of what you were describing yes. a couple a couple months and it's going to be interesting to see how that uh, is is studied and looked at and and used moving forward, right? I think when the next time we have some crazy cataclysmic event of that scale, we're going to just assume, well, New York will be back, and you know we're going to, you know, three months later we'll all be back, and every nothing right. will have changed, and the market will be great, and you know it's going to be interesting to see whether that. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, first of all, I hate people that say this time it's different, uh, but this time it's different, and uh, in this in one sense. Uh, is that I think everybody's reference point was a great financial crisis, you know, where you just need a pulse or fog and mirror to get a mortgage. And it really wasn't a housing bubble. It was a credit bubble with housing as a symptom. And in this cycle, we have, we have, we have very little supply versus too much supply. Um, and credit conditions are tighter than normal. So we don't have a banking crisis sort of looming over our shoulders on the other side of this. However, you know, I've been in the city since the mid eighties or, you know, and then moved to the suburbs and, uh, you know, we went through, uh, nine 11, um, you know, all kinds of, you know, the Lehman moment, um, 
you know, and then some the flash crash. There's all been all kinds of, you know, sort of large, medium and small events. And uh, I did an analysis of um, 9-11, cities rebound, 9-11 and, um, and Lehman and compared them. And uh, it really took about two years for those markets to see prices basically return to where they left off, about two years. This cycle, it took about a year. It, it was much faster. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, but, but it's still, in the context of history, one to two years is pretty, so pretty quick for sort of a, you know, a, a global event that no one saw coming. Um, so I find it, I don't know, it, it makes me, um, show my bias in the sense that I, I just really think New York has got something a little bit different. I'm not a native New York, not a native New Yorker, but, um, but I've lived here long enough to, to, and been through a bunch of cycles that, um, I've seen it time and time again, which is pretty interesting. It makes living here pretty interesting too. I guess, you know, this is less a question, more of a comment, but the, the, the biggest difference is, I think the lingering uncertainty, you know, those were discrete events with, uh, at least in like modern city life, there were, there were comparisons and we kind of knew that things were going to come back. To, we, I think in the back of our heads, we knew, you know, after 9-11, after Lehman, we kind of know where this is headed, where ultimately we're headed back to. Whereas like 8% office usage, I mean- Right, that's a you know, jolt. It, and, and we just don't know what where it's going to end up. Like there's there's really no good guidance in the modern era to tell us what's going to happen. So I think that uncertainty makes it uh, a little bit easier to say this time it's different. Maybe, um, yeah. That's uh, just you know my perspective on it. Well, so food for thought. Um, when you read, so if you look at asset classes like residential, hotel seem to be doing fine. You know, the laggards and, and industrial seems to be doing fine, but the laggards seem to be retail, which is really joined at the hip with commercial. So if you just say commercial is the, the weakest asset class in the city because of remote and just, you know, just accept that, that right now it's the, it's the most vulnerable, the weakest. And then you're reading a lot of research coming out of commercial brokerage firms, I say in air quotes, um, you know, that lease signings are normalizing. And you go, well, how's that? What, well, what you're never reading about, and I encourage you whenever you read anything about the commercial real estate market, there is never a discussion or a quote or a comment about rents falling sharply. And part of it is because the landlord's you know, if you have a 10 year, if you have 10 years left on the lease, you know, the company's either in business or out of business. They're out of business. It's a vacant space. If they're in business, they're paying their rent. Um, and so rents are down sharply. I mean, really sharply. And so if you, if you look at that and say, you know, so what are we going to do with all this empty office space? Well, eventually rents will come down to a point where companies that were priced out will come in. And, and, and I look at that as a positive in the sense that 
you know, it makes the city maybe a little bit more eclectic, um, like it was when I moved here in the mid eighties. Um, and right now you have, um, you're going to have polarization like you have, you had initially in the residential where, you know, I think some of these, you know, like the, and this is not a forecast. I, I don't cover, you know, in very specific terms, a commercial market, um, with reports or, you know, uh, surveys or anything, but just common sense. Um, I think that you're going to see, you know, high end commercial, the marquee commercial, like an SL green next to Grand Central do a lot better. It's going to be the best in it or everything and everything else. Um, you know, because they're leasing that space for sort of bragging rights for, for something beyond just utility. Um, and, and, and this is going to take five, 10 years. It's a lot because people have long leases. Um, I can see it. I'm moving my office. Like you can see it. You can see the asking rents. You can see. And, and then all these offices have liens against them, right? Commercial mortgages. And, and so that's going to be this whole challenge. Um, I think in the future that we don't know about. Um, and I don't think it's doom and gloom for the city. I think it just take changes the dynamic somewhat, the mix of what we have instead of skewing to luxury, 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 luxury. You know, it wasn't always like this. When I came here in the eighties, it was not like this and it was fine. Um, so, you know, I think maybe we get a little bit of a, a better mix for the city in the context of being sustainable. Jonathan, I want to be respectful of your time. I have I have one last question. Lee, I don't know if you, my question is kind of off the wall. So I don't know if you have any more questions that are more directed towards New York real estate or if I can, if I can go in with my final question. No, I want, I want to hear your off the wall question. It's, by the way, it's hardly, by the way Jonathan, we're, we're sitting in the SL Green property next to Grand Central. <laughs> so um, I don't know if that was just your spidey no. sense picking up or. No, well, you know, you seem like. You're SNL green worthy. So I just, I just went for it. Go ahead. Let's, let's hear how, now if it's not Danny, Cooper, then I'm going to be really disappointed and we're going to cut the podcast before. No, the you, you mentioned, you mentioned that you're re, you're researching all of these different markets in Southern California and different markets all over, all over the country. I'm, I'm wondering if you have in the last couple of months, there's been any pressure to get into the the craze of metaverse real estate and, and oh. these kind of digital digital real estate spaces. It's something that we've been talking about and looking into. Um, and was curious if that's a, if that's something that's on your on your radar or just something that you you're you're not interested in. No, it's it's so I don't hear anything at all about it in my world. Um, do you try putting theory, on, do you try putting on the VR goggles because maybe I, then I, you will yeah, the, the headset or whatever. Maybe you, you might yeah. hear about it. No, I'd probably get queasy. Um, so I don't want to do that. Um, no, I, I actually think, you know, it's, it's something maybe on the side. Um, my theory was that they, they pivoted to meta right as Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg was under just massive pressure and scrutiny in Washington. And I believed it was a PR play. They accelerated this sort of initiative for optics to sort of reduce the the pressure um, that they were getting. I, you know, I'm sure it's, it's real that they intend to, you know, this is all not a pipe dream. 
Um, I'm just not a, a big believer. They have to do something because Apple basically just turned choked, turned off the, uh, the feed and, uh, and that's killing them in terms of, uh, you know, revenue, um, that they had advertising revenue they used to count on and why Sheryl Sandberg just retired. So that was an answer that had nothing really to do with your question. Uh, it's it's the, 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 you know, we've, we've been, we've been chatting about, you know, all this, all this virtual real estate and whether it's, whether it's anything there, or whether it's just some passing fad and was curious to know what, what your thoughts yeah. were. But it, was, it was a terrible, it was a terrible question. So we'll, we'll, edit, we'll edit that part out. That's that will, that'll be cut in post. <laughs> so Jonathan, uh, you know, where can, um, where can people, read your stuff? Where can they find you other than just Googling your name and every single article on the internet has you quoted <laughs> in it? Um, where, where should they look for you on social media so they can see your non-economist status? Um, sure, sure. So a uh, couple of ways. One is my company, Miller Samuel, is a real estate appraisal firm in New York City. And we, our website is millersamuel.com. On the homepage, is a free sign up to my weekly newsletter called housing notes have a pretty big following and lots of charts and, you know, um, bad, uh, 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 what it reels on Instagram or TikTok videos, stuff like that. But yeah, it's largely, uh, you know, lots of research. I go into a lot of the stuff that we do. Um, and this actually this week, this Friday or Thursday, we're publishing in two days um, the latest results of the rental market, which should be pretty, you'll read about it probably on Thursday. And the research will be available on our website on on uh, Thursday and Friday. And the other thing is my Twitter uh, handle. I use that all the time. That's really the only social media that I really enjoy using, um, despite the insanity of it, is Jonathan Miller. Uh, at Jonathan Miller is my handle. Awesome. It was, it was great having you. Uh, super interesting. You know, this, this is the kind of thing where I think we'd love to have you on, you know, in a few months to kind of check in the state of the market and, and talk about what's going on. So hopefully we can as long as I can share some new dad jokes, I'm in. As long as we can coordinate our clothes beforehand, we'll have you back. <laughs> if we can't, if we're going to wear different outfits and I'm not interested in having you back on the program. So, okay. Well, well, it's a filter that I have. Uh, basically, you can see what shirt you're wearing. <laughs> it was great having you on. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Thanks. Oh, you bet. My pleasure, guys. Really fun. Take care.